Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Ion Travel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. As we near the 50th anniversary of Amtrak, 
I thought it might be a good idea to check in with William Flynn, Amtrak's CEO, on how America's trains are really doing, what's needed, and how to move forward, especially in the age of COVID. And of course, the inevitable subject, will we ever get high-speed rail? Then we'll cross the pond for a global hotel and hospitality update from Keith Barr, the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels. And then I'll speak with Gary Leff, founder of ViewFromTheWing.com, on the strange but true stories of airline passengers traveling with huge amounts of cash and what happened to them as well as the cash. And as we approach another anniversary, the 40th birthday of the Airline Frequent Flyer programs, a look at the true value of these programs and to the airlines and yes, even to you. But first up, all aboard, my conversation with Amtrak's William Flynn. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I have to start with a, a matter of full disclosure. I am an unabashed train freak. I grew up on trains. I live for trains. Um, and, and of course, my next guest, I think, is, can claim the same because he's the CEO of Amtrak. Bill Flynn, welcome to the show, sir. Well, thank you, Peter. And you know what? I grew up on trains, too. My dad was a locomotive engineer all of his life, and a, a brother was a conductor all of his life and retired from Amtrak, so I couldn't be happier to be here and share your enthusiasm for, for train travel. I know. And of course, in the last year, we've all seen the impact of COVID-19, how travel around the world has had to pivot, Amtrak as well. Uh, first of all, give us a situation report on exactly how you're doing these days. Well, we had certainly uh, quite a severe impact from COVID back in uh, in March and April as the pandemic was rolling through our country. Our, our, our ridership dropped to just 3% of, of normal level of ridership. We're back up now in the mid-20s uh, percentage of, say, normal level of ridership, and we expect that'll be close to 40% uh, as we come through the summer. But I, I certainly want to point out to, to, to you and your listeners uh, just what a great job uh, all of our Amtrak frontline employees did in responding to the pandemic and, and, and suiting up and showing up for work. Our focus as a, as a management team, as a company, was, of course, was to protect them and protect our riders. But, but uh, our folks took the right precautions, um, reported, and we've delivered very high level of service for everyone who wants to ride uh, Amtrak now and looking forward to regaining that ridership and growing uh, from in, starting this summer and then, and then beyond, of course. And speaking of that ridership, I know that you had to pull back on some of your routes, some of your long haul services. You kept the Northeast Corridor going for most of this time. Uh, I'm one of those fans of, of trains like the Southern Crescent and the Empire Builder and the Cardinal and the Sunset Limited and the Zephyr. Uh, are they back yet? So we had to make adjustments in the network uh, given the given the level of ridership. We actually ran the uh, long distance network really at full level of operations uh, through until um, October of uh, 2020, and that's when we began taking the many of the seven day uh, a week trains down to three days a week. Uh, but we've with funding and support from Congress, we have announced that we will be bringing. Uh, 
full restoration of the long-distance services. Uh, really, uh, we're starting all of that work now, recalling workers that were affected by furloughs, and we'll begin rolling that out with, uh, as a result of the new uh, funding and support. Uh, really in the month of uh, in the month of June, so it'll be a, a great level of operations. But but we have uh, just to be clear, we also reduced uh, our level of operations across our network, running the um, at about a 56 percent level of of ridership overall in the Northeast Corridor and in our other state-supported routes. We we certainly adjusted the level of operations to what the states asked us to do. We just announced um, today that we're restoring our Piedmont service, Raleigh to Charlotte, to a full three days a week, and we're very excited about that, and we're going to be looking for growth and restoration uh, really across the Amtrak network. Of course, we saw during the pandemic a number of airlines, it's now down to one, but a number of airlines saying we're going to block the middle seat, which, of course, even in pre-pandemic days was, was certainly news that we like to hear, even though it's not news for the, for the accountants at the airlines. Uh, but what you did at Amtrak was basically you blocked half the seats anyway, didn't you? Yes, we did. We did a number of things to, in response to the COVID. But what we did initially was to block every other seat or said another way, we would only book uh, uh, up to 50 percent of the train. Certainly, if you were traveling together as a couple or a family, you, you would sit next to each other. But otherwise, no, you'd be sitting uh, one person to uh, uh, a row of two seats. And uh, that's worked very well for us. More broadly, we worked with uh, the Milken Institute of Public Health, part of George Washington's university, so that they could advise us on the whole suite of protocols that we have implemented uh, regarding cleaning on the trains, our stations, as much of a no-touch, no-contact experience uh, for our riders, what more can we do to protect our employees as well. And we continue to take advice from them. Uh, we're well positioned uh, when this started, Peter. We have our own uh, medical department and also public health group. And so we, we had resources uh, as part of the management team that could help us in our immediate response and then reached out and worked with George Washington um, University and also with some professors from the Bloomberg uh, School of Public Health as well. And so we'll, we'll adjust, we'll adjust um, the seating protocol or the seating uh, plans as we move forward particularly now as vaccines are more available and rolling out. But, but, uh, but certainly uh, rider, rider health and employee health are our number one priority. Let me shift gears and just talk about fares, because during the pandemic, we saw fares as low as $18 on airlines from Fort Lauderdale to LaGuardia, which I'm sure everybody would agree is absurd. Um, we had a recent fare from New York to Los Angeles on American Airlines of $90. Uh, I'm sure your fares took a hit as well at that point. They did. Um, or perhaps said another way, we looked at the fares we were um, we were charging and in, in, in a number of cases have have also, you know, in put in fares in place now to stimulate some level of ridership, support some level of ridership, uh, develop new riders. We've seen a lot of new passengers over the last couple of months, uh, first time riders to Amtrak. And our goal is going to be uh, to convert them. Uh, to lifelong uh, riders of Amtrak going forward. And fares, is, fares are one way to do that. Uh, I think the experience is the other, right? I mean, whatever fare you pay, you're looking for the experience. And I think Amtrak provides our riders uh, really a great ride, one that's differentiated from other modes. And particularly with uh, what we've seen in the last several months, really it's been a younger uh, a group of people who've been traveling us for the first time, a kind of an 18 to 34-year-old seg seg segment. 
and and for them uh, certainly understanding you know the 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 impact that travel has on the environment and and really the reduced level of impact the reduced level of carbon footprint um, and other emissions that Amtrak provides per passenger mile I think is going to be is important to them and I think an important uh, feature of us growing our our ridership for the long haul you know I'll share a story with you that came about to me by accident I was in Richmond, Virginia, and needed to get back to New York City. And the airline options back then were ridiculously expensive, seven to $800 on Delta. And then I went online to Amtrak and saw you had the Northeast Regional, but then came the surprise. I saw that if I got down to the Richmond station at 4.30 in the morning, what showed up? The Silver Meteor. It sounds like a bad Richard Pryor movie, but it was the Silver Meteor. And at a very reasonable fare, I could actually rent a sleeper compartment and take it all the way to Penn Station that almost beat the Northeast Regional. I said, I'm in. And I did it, and I loved it. And I noticed recently that what you're offering on the Northeast Corridor is some of those sleeper compartments as well. Yeah, That's right, Peter. We've recently introduced or reintroduced sleepers to the overnight trains um, on our Northeast Corridor. We're getting great passenger acceptance to them. Sleepers really across the network through this COVID uh, uh, pandemic have been uh, mostly sold out, sleepers and or our roomettes, and there's just exceptionally strong demand. It's a unique feature that, that Amtrak can offer, uh, that, and it's something that our customers are telling us they just want more of, and so we're responding um, to that as well. It's a, it's a great ride. I have to, yeah. It is a great ride. I have to tell you, I've done it so many times, not on the Northeast Corridor, but on trains like the Southern Crescent, you know, which leaves Penn Station at around, you know, one or two in the afternoon and gets in New Orleans at six o'clock the next night. And if it's on time and you're in that sleeper compartment and you sleep better, you think better, you create better. It's it's terrific. But you heard me say, Bill, the words on time. So it brings up my next question for you, which is, you know, people don't realize that Amtrak doesn't really control most of the tracks. It's the freight lines. And that's always been sort of a big argument uh, that I know you've had uh, over the years, as, has, as have your predecessors, about how can we be on time if the freight lines are taking precedence on the tracks? How do you resolve that? That's really a great point, Peter. And, and you know, in, on May 1st, we're going to be celebrating our, our 50th anniversary Amtrak started operations in, in 1971. And when Amtrak was created, there was an essential bargain that was struck between the freight railroads and the U.S. government uh, and the creation of Amtrak. And, and what that bargain was, the freight railroads were allowed to relieve or transfer their passenger common carrier obligations to this new entity, Amtrak. And in exchange for that, in exchange for the government taking on the responsibility to provide intercity passenger rail, Amtrak, by statute, is guaranteed the right of access, the right to access and ride passenger uh, trains on the, on the track infrastructure owned and maintained by the uh, freight railroads. The question, the cliffhanger, who controls the tracks? I'll let you continue. Well, the tracks are indeed the property of the freight railroads. But in the bargain that was struck when Amtrak was created, Amtrak was guaranteed by statute the right of access, the right to operate passenger trains on the freight railroad track infrastructure at a determined price structure, and importantly, the right of preference, which gets to your question about on time. So on track infrastructure, the right of preference simply means passenger trains should be granted preference for their operation 
over freight trains so as to ensure a competitive service and, importantly, on-time reliability because ultimately that's what a rider buys. A passenger buys a performance from A to B. Maybe it's in a sleeper, maybe it's not, but on-time arrival is an essential part of that. And so that's a key area of focus for, for Amtrak in our discussions with the freight railroads and um, uh, certainly in our discussions with uh, the administration and, uh, and with the STB as well. So let me go one step beyond that and tell you my experience. I've had probably five, you know, wonderful ra- railroad rides on Amtrak over the last three or four years. Only about one of them was on time, and the, and I noticed the reason. We had to pull over on a siding to let a freight lo- freight train go through. So I, I, I'm wishing you the best of luck in your discussions with these guys because they don't understand high-speed rail. They don't care about it. I mean, they're freight trains. Well, the essential element there, Peter, is that by statute, by agreement, when the U.S. government agreed to take on those passenger rail respons- uh, responsibilities, intercity passenger rail responsibility, it was on the assumption and on the right for passenger trains to have preference over freight railroads. And when we don't get it, unfortunately, our passengers are delayed. And that's something that, that we need to continue uh, to work and to work on aggressively because that's what's going to in- and spur the growth of inner city passenger rail as an essential part of our nation's mobility strategy. Exactly. And speaking of preference, of course, here come the three words I know you know a lot about, high-speed rail. Every administration says they want it. A lot of governors either opt in or opt out. There are some experiments happening on the West Coast. And you know, I would love to know uh, when we're actually going to see something called Infrastructure Week. We waited for it for four years in the Trump administration. They're not talking about it in the Biden administration. But I would assume that Infrastructure Week would have a big component part, otherwise known as high-speed rail. Well, Infrastructure Week is just a great idea. And of course, we know President Biden is, is fully committed to Infrastructure Week. But, but also so is uh, Secretary Buttigieg and Elise leadership in both the House and the Senate, respective uh, committees of responsibility. And yes, Amtrak, inner city passenger rail, that's trip time competitive, to, to quote the statute, uh, is an essential part of that. As you know, we're going to be deploying our new Acela 21s um, starting later this year on the Northeast Corridor, and there'll be trip times up to 165 miles an hour. Not every section of the route's going to be 165 because we have to stop at stations along the way and then, and then reaccelerate coming out. But there's a substantial opportunity for inner city passenger rail that will operate at speeds that provide our riders a competitive offering in terms of transit time between point A and B that provide a great experience uh, within the rail car itself. And then the other amenities that come along with this, such as uh, Internet, uh, so that uh, if we want to be connected, we can be connected. So I think the upside's great. Our long-term goal over the next 20 years would be to more than double ridership from the 32.4 million riders we had in 2019 before COVID to something, you know, 65 million or so as we get into 2040. And there's a roadmap for that to be done. And of course, it's going to be, and it's going to require a real sustained commitment to infrastructure. And of course, the the one story that I've been covering for a long time, which I know is, is near and dear to you and from a safety perspective, is PTC, positive train control. Positive train control is an essential part of, of railroad operations, whether it's passenger rail or freight rail. It, it's taking safety of operations um, to the next level. We have completed um, uh, PTC uh, implementation um, uh, along with all of the other railroads. Work, and now it's about operating it and maintaining it, but it's an essential part of taking rail safety to the next level, whether that's passenger rail, freight rail, passenger rail on freight uh, on freight networks. You know, it, it's an essential part of the future, and we're committed to it. And I know the freight railroads are as well. The entire industry is committed to PTC. The entire railroad industry 
is committed to constantly improving the level of safety of operations. And for those people who don't know what Bill and I are talking about, PTC, it's an interactive system that's now on board the trains that allows the train essentially to talk to controllers automatically to make sure that no speed is exceeded beyond the train's limit to handle it. And uh, we've seen, obviously, accidents in the past, which really prompted Congress to set a deadline for the installation. And I'm happy, Bill, that you've done it. Oh, we're very excited that we've done it. It's it's one of the more important safety measures we can take, and, and we've done so. As I said, the industry has, and that's, that's the important part. The industry, across the board's uh, level of commitment to safety. And my last question to you is, as you're entering your 50th anniversary, is are you announcing any new routes? Well, we have some ideas that we're going to be talking about uh, with the administration on uh, expanding the level of service on some routes that we have today and expanding uh, service to areas we don't serve. You know, when Amtrak was founded, Peter, 50 years ago, the population in the United States was about 209, 210 million people. And today, 330, 335. We'll see what the census finally underscores that. So 120 million people have grown. Uh, our population has grown by 120 million people. And our network today looks a lot like the network we had in, in 1971. And a lot of that growth has been in the south and in the western uh, regions of our country. And we have limited service in many of those areas. Yet I believe there's a crying need for high quality inner city passenger rail. And that's the opportunity set for us. And that's what we're going to be talking about. My thanks to William. Believe it or not, 34% of all hotels are technically in financial default these days, unable to maintain their debt service. So which hotels are open, which are closed, and which may never reopen? Intercontinental CEO Keith Barr knows the answers. I always like having our next guest on the show because he gives us a really good global overview of what's going on in travel simply because... It's what he does. He is the CEO of the Intercontinental Hotel Group, IHG. They have just a few little hotel rooms and just a few hotels around the world. Keith Barr, welcome to the show, Keith. Hey, great to talk with you, Peter. Now, Keith, you're in London right now. I'm, uh, I'm here in, in New York. Uh, my question to you, of course, is give us a sort of a, a numbers update. How many hotels is really IHG re- responsible for now in terms of all of your brands? got about 6,000 hotels around the world, brands ranging from Six Senses through Holiday Inn to Holiday Inn Express and Kimpton, so in over 100 countries. So yeah, pretty uh, pretty big global footprint, nearly 900,000 rooms. And of course, a big global footprint these days during the pandemic means a big global impact, not necessarily positive right now. Uh, in the U.S., we're dealing with about 34% of all hotels, at least technically in a state of default and foreclosure, not that, not that they're all being foreclosed on, but they're having problems making, at least the owners are having problems making debt service. A lot of hotels either are not open now or may not reopen uh, this year. Uh, what's the situation with all of your owners and of all of your hotels? Yeah, we have about 97% of our hotels opened up around the world and we've been very focused on helping our owners get through this pandemic by lessening some operating standards, focusing on how we can maintain their cash flow, really helping them get through to the other side. Because as you know, I mean, 2019 was a record year for the industry. 2020 has also been a record year in the wrong way. And so how do we help get back to better times and really support our owners through this? Exactly. And when you think about it, uh, most people don't still realize that when they see a, a Marriott or a Hilton or an Intercontinental or a Holiday Inn, that doesn't mean that your company owns those brands. You manage them. So it's really about the owners being able to stay above water. Yes. Every conversations we've had with governments around the world is to remind them, these are small business owners. 
men and women who maybe have one, two, or three hotels with us who are really struggling to get through the crisis. Now, fortunately, we have seen an uptick in the latter portion of last year, a bit of occupancy, um, but also government support too. So things like the stimulus packages with the payroll protection plans in place uh, and other things that are happening in other markets. So we're constantly talking to governments of helping these small business owners get through, keep these hotels open, and keep our colleagues employed. Now, I'm sure you're monitoring this the way we are on this side of the Atlantic, the dissemination of the vaccines, not just in the United States, but on a global level, uh, the improvement, perhaps, of uh, more reliable, widespread testing, and, of course, intersecting with the pent-up demand for travel to begin with. What, what are your indications showing you as to, at least on U.S. domestic travel, when that might be coming back? Sure. I mean, like you, I mean, I never thought about this. Every morning I look at two sets of data. I look at bookings and cancellations and vaccination rates around the world. Whoever thought we'd be talking about that. Um, what we're seeing now, again, is increased confidence in the U.S. with the acceleration of, of vaccines. We saw some peak occupancies over the Martin Luther King long weekend, actually then on Valentine's Day. So we're seeing that leisure demand and um, really begin to come back. And in terms of search data, too, on digital, people are looking more and more really kind of in the southeast and the southwest of the United States, where it's warmer, people can be outdoors. We're seeing the strongest kind of interest in travel, and it's principally leisure-led. You know, it's interesting because from a pricing point of view, uh, it's almost changed the business model of the legacy major airlines, American, United, and Delta, which their business model is really filling up the front of the cabin with high-yield business travelers. That hasn't happened. So whether they want to admit it or not, they're now discount low-fare carriers, um, and when the business and when the leisure travel returns, which I'm sure you'll agree will lead the parade, uh, it'll be interesting to see what that'll do to fares because the low fare carriers who are already in the market, uh, the spirits, the frontiers, the allegiance, the sun countries, even the southwests, have been flooding the zone with announcements of new routes at a time it would almost sound counterintuitive that anybody would be adding any routes, but they are. Uh, are you seeing that also in the hotel in, in the hotel world? Yeah, we're definitely seeing, I mean, initially it was going to be a drive-led recovery, but they're also seeing sort of the, the leisure air traffic come back as well, too. And I think you're going to have an interesting challenge of the big domestic ca carriers um, cutting supply, right? They've cut back on a number of air routes that are there, and the discount carriers coming in to, to fill that void. I think that's going to be, be helpful in terms of leisure travel coming back, because we've seen it around the world already, Peter. It, what amazed me is when the, when the virus is contained, we saw places like China, planes are full, trains are full, resorts are full. So people want to travel when they feel it's safe to do so. And so this is going to be all driven by government restrictions being lifted, borders opening up around the world, and customers feeling safe and confident. And of course, you have a big imprint of the Holiday Inn brand in China, so I'm sure you saw that rebound very soon. Yeah, it's actually the strongest performing market in the world right now is China. We saw that at the end of last year, it was only off by about 18% versus the previous year. And that was because some of the urban hotels, which are dependent upon more international inbound, weren't performing quite as well because it's basically a domestic-led recovery there too. But a lot of confidence that in places like Australia, we've seen business come back, New Zealand business is beginning to come back, but it's domestic-led because the fact that borders are, are closed. Exactly. And then, of course, there's pricing. Um I, I talked about this for the last four weeks on this show, that the average airfare in coach from New York to Los Angeles on American Airlines on a nonstop 777 is $92. Unheard of. Uh, the cab ride to Kennedy is almost $92. Um, 
What's that doing to pricing in the hotel sector? We've seen actually pricing hold up pretty well, which has been um, really, really, I think, helpful for the industry to keep these hotels flowing off cash, paying off debt service and keeping people employed too. So, And in the leisure destinations, there's actually probably a bit of pricing power because there's been this kind of real increase in demand. We just did a, we just did a survey recently and you know, 40% of travelers are saying they need to book a trip to look forward to for their own mental health and well-being. And 50% <laughs> of our customers have already rebooked their canceled trips from last year. And so, so you know, we definitely think that's going to be the driving force behind it. So basically, you've just given me the new Intercontinental Hotel Group uh, marketing and branding campaign of improving mental health. Exactly, exactly. Holidays are good for everyone, particularly uh, in this tough times. Exactly. So now, thinking about going beyond that, and you talked about governments, that's really the, the, the still the biggest impediment on so many levels because it's changing so rapidly. The minute you think you can go back somewhere, all of a sudden there may be a spike in cases. They close the borders again. We've seen this in Canada two or three times in a row. We've seen it in the United Kingdom and many of the European Union countries. Uh, to what extent can you work with these governments to figure out a way to make travel a little bit more seamless to, to give them the confidence to, to reopen? Yeah, we've been talking as the travel industry, not just hotels, not just airlines, but as the industry, talking to the G20 and um, the major governments in the world about how do you facilitate travel on a go-forward basis? Common approaches to quarantine, common approaches to testing. Uh, what's the view going to be on vaccines overall to enable it? I think what's different now, Peter, versus last year was we were opening up in a non-vaccine environment. And so then there was a flare-up. And then they had to close things back down again. What we're hearing from like the UK government is they don't want to go back to lockdown. So they're being much more measured. And so, you know, if you believe that the US is going to be principally vaccinated by the middle of this year, uh, UK similarly, and then you followed by Canada, the European Union into Q3, you really do see a pathway to the world opening up over time. But it's going to be a multi-year recovery. I mean, the projections now are that even in 2023, we're only back to 90% of the revenues as an industry we saw in 2019. Well, we're talking to Keith Barr, the CEO of Intercontinental Hotel Group. Keith, the other interesting thing that I'm seeing on a proactive level, being proactively done by the hotels themselves, is in destinations where you know there are requirements now either for entry or exit, that three-day, 72-hour COVID-19 test, uh, especially coming back to the U.S., you know, it's not really what focus groups are going to tell you. It's not what they're talking about. It's what they're thinking about. And so many people are thinking that, well, I don't want to go anywhere and get stuck and not be able to go home. Um, and so a number of these resorts and hotels are offering free COVID-19 testing and then throwing in a little bit of an additional incentive by saying, should you test positive, we'll put you up for free for the next two weeks. One hotel in, in the Bahamas, one resort in the Bahamas, went one step further and said, we'll not only put you up, we'll fly you back home on a private jet. I mean... I mean, it, it sounds great. I don't know how you can economically support that. But what is IHG doing, at least in the testing phase? Yeah, we've basically been working with local government requirements because it varies from country to countries. In some cases, you actually have to have a COVID test to come into the country or then to exit the country back there. So we're really trying to follow the government guidelines. Uh, and then in certain markets, we're doing things where we're testing employees and we're testing guests as well if we're being required to do so. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. 
We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Well, now let's go to the brave new world of the vaccination passport. Everybody's talking about it. Uh, Some countries are developing it uh, for their own citizens, like Denmark. The uh, airline group, IATA, is is asking for one. But the real question is, what is there going to be one that's universally readable, universally acceptable, uh, universally updatable, and one that can't be forged? What are you hearing and what are you working towards within your group? Yeah, we're having, again, conversations with the other travel bodies of saying there's going to be different approaches for different countries. IATA is working on their app as well, too. And so how do we make sure that these are interchangeable and that basically we don't land on just one option that can't work everywhere we need to? So we want to give optionality on terms of vaccinations and also testing protocols, too, as we're still in this. I think it's going to be a challenge, though. And I've been pretty public about my views on vaccine passports. It's, I think it's part of the solution to enable and facilitate travel. It shouldn't be used to prevent travel, though. That's the flip side of this, of saying, you know, how can we make it easier for people to do it? And I'll give you a good example. Vaccines and in, in, in under 18s. We're not really sure what's going to happen there. And so effectively, are we saying that we're not going to let families travel anytime soon? And I think that's really damaging to this industry. And so it's really understanding about how do we have a common protocol in terms of vaccines, tracking, data, and testing that enables this industry to come back um, in a very healthy and sustainable way? Um, it's tough, though. Everybody wants to do it a slightly different way, Peter. And it's a bit like herding cats right now trying to get them to agree. But we're going to keep lobbying in the big industry bodies to try to come up with a joined-up approach. You know, it's interesting. There's a certain irony here. We're now seeing cruise lines one by one uh, saying that they're requiring all their crew and all their officers to be vaccinated. And that's going to be followed by a requirement for every passenger to be vaccinated within 14 days, getting their second dose before they'll ever let them on the ship. So the irony is, in terms of the optics, here are the cruise lines that took such a beating uh, when, when the pandemic started that may actually become the safest way to travel because every single person on the ship will have been vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, it could be a very, very sensible way, especially in a industry where you're really in confined spaces. You know, effectively, that's one of the real challenges that have faced the cruise industry was the the inability to physically distance easily uh, and just the, the, the close proximity of people there too. So, you know, cruises could be one of the safest places um, based upon that protocol going forward. And But hotels are safe, Peter. I mean, we know that, right? We've, we've been operating for frontline workers and helping a number of governments around the world. We know how to operate the hotels in this sort of environment. And it just gets safer every day with every, every vaccine or every jab, as they call it over here in the UK. You know, we, we saw the idea uh, in practice, of course, and it's it's not even arguable that social distancing in an airline cabin are mutually exclusive. You can't widen the cabin. So even the airlines that are blocking the middle seat, it's, it's a nice touch. But what it does from an epidemiological point of view is somewhat questionable. I mean, look, I'm sure you and I both agree, even pre-pandemic, we'd love to fly on a plane where there's nobody sitting next to us. I get it. Uh, I mean, that's a no-brainer. But the one airline that's continuing to block the those middle seats is Delta. And by the end of, of next month, they're going to stop that practice. You're not suggesting, though, that Intercontinental is going to be blocking the middle room. 
No, no, because effectively, you know, in your own room, you're in your own space, which is what's great about hotels, right? Effectively, you can do digital check-in with us, go to your room uh, and really, you know, self-isolate and not see anybody if you chose to and order room service. Not that uh, you necessarily want to always do that. So it's incredibly safe to engage with us. Whereas in other parts of the travel journey, you can't physically distance yourself from someone too. But you can do it in hotels and you can do it responsibly even in meetings. You know, we've cr created our new Meet with Confidence program and hybrid meetings, and we're actually running them around the world right now where people are having meetings in hotels, socially distancing, leveraging technology to make sure that everyone's physically safe. You know, the real challenge going forward, and you just brought this up on the, in the, on the subject of meetings, is that to me, a hotel is an opportunity for a large social gathering of shared experience. We can't do that a lot these days. You know, look at the Las Vegas model, uh, look at concert models, and, and, and of course, meetings and conventions. So what are you actually doing in terms of your capacity for the meetings business, which most people think is not going to come back until the end of 2023, early 2024? Yeah, we have to basically, in, in the COVID environment, we've had to reduce our meeting capacity. So we've had to go to all of our hotels that have big meetings, conferences, and events, redo all their meeting room layouts, all their capacity charts, all the ways they operate to make sure that we can physically distance people appropriately for government guidelines and things like CDC guidelines and deliver a safe experience change how we do food and beverage in terms of having it being individualized versus buffets and, and big you know, big coffee breaks. And so we've had to change the way we work uh, and it works. Um, we do look forward to getting back to how we used to be though, because it's a lot better experience for everyone uh, and a lot easier for us to operate. Uh, and that's, uh, that's around the corner though. I mean, you saw a new CDC guidance came out today, which we're basically talking about, you know, ways that we can begin to interact more post vaccinations. And, and that gives me confidence that you and I will be hopefully next time sitting over a, a cup of coffee together, having this face to face. I would look forward to that very, very much. Of course, you know, when you take a look at the real numbers and what you're operating at, whether it's capacity and occupancy at the hotel or capacity of the meeting space, you reach a certain point of diminishing returns where it's not profitable to do that. You have to get to a point where you can cross that bridge. Yeah, definitely. I mean, which is why we still do have some hotels that are closed. We've made some decisions and it's particularly some of the big urban city center hotels where until we can actually have big meetings and events, yeah. uh, it doesn't make sense to reopen. There's just I no way you. they're going to be economically profitable. And so the, the Holiday Inn Express or that great Holiday Inn Resort is staying open now. But some of our big intercontinentals in places like London and Paris and New York aren't open today because uh, they depend upon people getting on planes and long haul travel as well. My thanks to Keith. One of my favorite websites is viewfromthewing.com, and founder Gary Leff always finds interesting stories. And this week, he didn't disappoint. A disturbing story of passengers who tried to fly between points A and B carrying large amounts of cash in bags. So what happened to those passengers, and what happened to the money? Gary found out. Uh, my next guest wrote a story that just blew me away, and I had to have him on the show. He's been on the show before, but... This might surprise you about how much money, cash, is seized from passengers every year at the 15 largest airports in the United States, um, and they get to do it, law enforcement gets to do it just because. We're talking over $200 million a year. Now, this is not the remake of the French Connection. This is not uh, some sort of a, of a uh, you know, narcos episode. This is regular Americans flying between points A and B. Uh, and you would think that if I go to the bank and take out $30,000 because I want to pay somebody in cash, I'm allowed to fly with it. Well, we all know the rules about flying money into the United States. And if you don't, you should. Um, anytime you're coming back to the United States, you're essentially making a declaration that you are not carrying with you more than $10,000 in cash 
or securities. Um, and that's not a problem for me. <laughs> I never do that. But what about traveling just within the U.S.? Why wouldn't you be able to travel with whatever you want to travel with? My next guest, of course, you know him, Gary Leff, the author of ViewFromTheWing.com. He just wrote a piece about the TSA and the DEA seizing travelers' cash at airports, and it's a wild story. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. You know, a lot of people realize that they have to declare amounts over $10,000 coming into the country, but very few people know that you have to declare amounts over $10,000 if you're leaving the country. Most people wouldn't even know where to go to do that, uh, but it is the law. Uh, and, of course, if you're carrying cash uh, domestically, uh, that is, you know, on its own a potential reason why the government may view you as uh, uh, engaged in illegal activity. Uh, the burden of proof is on you to, to demonstrate that it's not, and they may never have to charge you with any kind of a crime and keep the money. Well, let's talk about this, because you specifically talked about a case of an elderly gentleman whose daughter uh, was trying to help him move into an apartment. He didn't trust banks. He kept his life savings all of it at home, somewhere hidden away, about $82,000. She convinced him that she would set up a joint bank account with him and took the money home with her to Boston since banks were closed for the day and she was flying out early the next morning. Okay, pick it up from there, Gary. Yeah, so she's going through airport security, and if you're carrying $80,000 through uh, the x-ray machine, this is going to uh, be a bit of a flag, and the TSA calls the DEA over. There's a tremendous amount of law enforcement uh, around most airports, and they decided to confiscate the money. Uh, in fact, what happened is, you know, it's early in the morning, very early morning flight, and they call her elderly father. Uh, to verify her story. Now, you know, his ability to articulate things, you know, isn't the best to begin with, which is why he needed the joint bank account and his daughter's help. And they decided that the stories weren't identical uh, of a match. And so uh, they kept the money and she's been trying to get the money back. There's a uh, pro bono uh, law firm that's trying to help her get the money back. And they filed a nationwide class action lawsuit, you know, largely to you know, find out what are the criteria that the government is even using? Uh, what are the standards of proof to be able to take money away from people going through uh, security checkpoints? You know, um, I actually served as an expert witness in a case uh, that didn't wind up going to trial. The government backed off and returned the man's money. But uh, you know, about five years ago, uh, he had had his life savings confiscated because his luggage smelled of pot. Um, the, there wasn't any drugs on him when he was searched. Uh, if your Uber or Lyft driver's vehicle smelled a pot and it got into your luggage, that would be enough for the government to take your money away if you happen to be carrying it through the airport. Wow. And, and back, that happened in Cincinnati. And here's the weird part that you reported. That was one of over 90 such seizures in a year at the Cincinnati airport alone. Wow. What are they looking for at Cincinnati? Yeah, well, you know, it's not just in Cincinnati. The government actually says that if you're flying between Chicago and Los Angeles, Chicago is a known center of drug activity, and so is Los Angeles. And either city being on uh, one end of your itinerary uh, justifies their suspicions that you might be involved in drugs, and they can take your money. So I guess the moral to this story, and there is one, 
whether or not, and by the way, these cases are going to court. In many cases, the, the government backs off because they, they really don't have a case. But in many cases, there's a statute of limitations that benefits the government. If you don't file a claim fast enough, you're going to lose the money anyway. So, so here's the deal. The moral to this story, I would guess, and you can come tell me if I'm wrong here, Gary, is that if you want to be stupid enough to travel with cash, I don't know anybody who really wants to do that, but there are certain people who just believe in it. If you're stupid enough to travel with it, make sure you get a letter from your bank or a letter from the person who you're carrying it for or basically a really good explanation of why you're, why you're carrying it in the first place and make sure you have a witness. Make sure there's somebody there with you. Otherwise, it's your word against the government and that money may never come back to you. I mean, I agree with that. And first of all, you know, the advice is don't travel with cash if you can avoid it, because the standard of proof here is uh, so low. The money is taken. It's very difficult to get back. Uh, You may be offered a small portion back in exchange for signing away rights to the rest of it. Uh, So don't travel with cash if you can avoid it. It shouldn't be the case uh, because it's legal to travel with cash, but it's also legal for the government to take that cash. So avoid it. You know, there are plenty of ways to transfer money uh, electronically. Um, but you're right. If you do, you know, be prepared as you possibly can be, uh, because you don't know uh, when you're going to get stopped and have it taken from you. And certainly, there likely are plenty of people who are doing nefarious things and dealing in cash, um, but plenty of people who aren't as well. And this all dates back to you know the push in the war on drugs that lowered the standards of proof as a as a way of cracking down on drugs for for better or worse. Um, but you know, it, it, like in so many other things, it's grown well beyond uh, where it started. And we all hear the term "follow the money," but what you ought to do first of all is deal with a different form of money so that you don't get to this situation. The best all-time "don't travel with cash" story actually happened uh, earlier this year in a court case in India, where a guy had tried to check in. I mean, actually carry on the plane about $850,000 worth of cash. The airline said, no, he had to check it. Think about that for a second. He had to check it. He checks it. And of course, what a surprise. It doesn't show up. It just doesn't show up. He sues the airline. The airline claims that they're not responsible. Guess what? Things come to those who wait. The court actually ruled for the guy. And he got a settlement of about $3.5 million, but it took about six years to get it. A lot of hard work for that one. But uh, again, if you have a choice of traveling with large forms of cash and currency or not, it's a no-brainer. Please don't do it, okay? Or here's what you can do. Call me. I'll come to the airport with Gary, and we'll take it from you. You'll never get it back. (laughs) We'll seize it, (laughs) and we'll go have a party. Peter, the thing about, I mean, you, you know better than anyone that, you know, checked luggage is reasonably likely not to make it to its destination, even when it doesn't have about a million dollars in cash. That's right. My, my philosophy has always been there are two kinds of airline bags, carry on and lost. And if you're carrying cash, it could be lost in both cases. So we've learned that lesson. Keep on that story. Please let me know, Gary, when these court cases come up and where there's some jurisdictional decisions made, because I really want to know what's going on. Now, another item up for bids here on The Price is Right is we're coming up on another anniversary. And this is one that is near and dear to both of us because I was one of the very first members of it back in 1981. Uh, Hard to believe, but the American Airlines Advantage program next month, 
celebrates its 40th anniversary. At the time, no argument that the frequent flyer programs were the most uh, brilliant marketing uh, efforts and tools of the 20th century. It really did at that point reward, reward you for your loyalty in the early days. Uh, we all became addicts, and the definition of an addict is, of course, we're all members of more than one program. Uh, we saw the movie Up in the Air with George Clooney. That, that's proof positive when he takes out all his affinity cards and lays them out on the table. But where are those programs today, 40 years later? How many miles are out there that have never been redeemed? How many miles may never, ever be redeemed? How many miles are you sitting on that you've not redeemed or couldn't redeem? And in the age of COVID-19, are we in a very interesting position now where for the first time in years, if you're, if you're holding on to some miles, it may be the best possible time ever, did you hear me, ever to redeem them? Want to feel old? I do. Because I was my, my mileage number on American Airlines starts with a zero. So that should tell you something. That's right, the 40th anniversary of the Advantage program, which of course was followed right after that with United and TWA and everybody else for that matter. It started cottage industries that we still can't even get our arms around. Uh, one, of the most, uh, one of the most effective marketing schemes of the 20th century. But here we are 40 years later. Trillions of unredeemed miles out there, airlines trying to recover from COVID-19 with a lot of excess capacity. Is this the best time to use your miles? Who do I talk to? Of course, Gary Leff, viewfromthewing.com. Hey, Gary. Hey, Peter. Listen, you know, a little bit of trivia. You certainly know this, but uh, many readers wouldn't. American Advantage is usually said to be uh, the first frequent flyer program, and that's not quite true. It's the first one that offered free flights. And United did announce theirs days later in May 1981. The very first mileage-based program was uh, 1979, Texas International Airlines. And Western Airlines had their travel pass program in 1980. But that was $50 off every five trips. The, the very first program offering free flights, that was Advantage. And they were unique in offering upgrades as well. And it was never obvious that this was going to become the hit that it ultimately did. In fact, originally the code name internally for the project was Loyalty Fair because the idea was to come up with a frequent traveler discount. And they realized that if they just offered a discount, then every other airline would match that too. And they were looking for something that would keep customers loyal and coming back. So Advantage was what was born and it was originally introduced as a promotion. They didn't know it was going to succeed. It wasn't made indefinite until two years in, in April 1983, uh, when it became a permanent part of the airline. And now, gosh, you know, they've had it appraised at nearly $30 billion, and they've borrowed $10 billion against it because they have over 100 million members, 23 million of whom are active in the program. It's incredibly profitable to them as well as to consumers, right, who we all love our ferry travel. But American Airlines told the SEC uh, just a few weeks ago that they have a 50%, 52% profit margin uh, on the program, on the sale of their frequent flyer miles, right? They, wow. they control how much each mile is worth. Um, but, you know, of course, uh, the, you know, Advantage miles are the miles I've redeemed the most over time, not usually for travel on American, for travel on their partners, to see the world in business and first class. And if you've got the flexibility to you know, look for those saver awards, uh, they can deliver you know, tremendous value still. And as airlines add back flights, uh, uh, hopefully the pandemic uh, beginning to get under control uh, with vaccination, then 
you know, gosh, this is a great time where international flights aren't full and there are award seats to be had out there. You know, you mentioned America not necessarily being the first. I got one on you. Actually, there was another one that goes way back before then to the 1950s. I know because I was the first one they gave it to. A very unusual frequent flyer program on American Airlines. I became the first member when I was six months old on a DC-7 flight going from New York to California. It made a stop, as you can imagine. And I became the first member of the American Airlines Sky Cradle Club. (laughs) And uh, the pilot and the stewardesses signed the certificate. I still have it framed. I'm still waiting for my benefits, by the way. And then, of course, in the 60s and 70s, United Airlines had their Million Miler Club. Um, And you got little commemorative coins that you got to put into a wooden plaque as you achieved each milestone. But that's all you got. So in terms of a tangible benefit, this is the one. And uh, going into its 40th anniversary now, as you just said, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see if there's going to be a mileage run as people are trying to redeem miles for seats they never could get before. Uh, For once, they can get them if they start thinking maybe 330 days out. You know, there are tremendous opportunities. At the same time, there's going to be a lot of competition. Most of the travel that's out there is leisure travel right now. Uh, People wanting to use their points and especially after not having used them in a year. Uh, So there is a lot of points sitting on the sidelines for still, you know, fewer seats than there were. So great opportunities, but also great, uh, great uh, competition for them. And so I think it's going to pay to be really uh, aggressive. Look, when you find the seats that you want, uh, book them. In many cases, these are pretty flexible itineraries. American eliminated their cancellation and mileage redeposit fee. So if you think there's an itinerary you might want, just look, ticket it, and you, know, you give yourself that option. Uh, and then you have the ability to use it, and you can change your mind later. Just don't forget to cancel it. <laughs> You're not kidding. Bottom line is, uh, over the years, people have tried to uh, deed their miles, will their miles, uh, sell their miles. Uh, there have been interesting court cases about it, some of which affirmed the airline position, some of which didn't. And I, I can't tell you, Gary, how many emails I'm still getting saying, you know, my husband passed away three months ago and he has 600,000 miles. What should I do? And what's interesting is, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not suggesting people break the law or break the rules, but... The minute you tell the airlines that, you know, Uncle Milty died, those miles may go away. Each airline has its own rule on this. And it is worth actually mentioning your miles in your estate planning. Put them in your will because often those that do allow some flexibility will require it to be in a you know written legal form in order to transfer the points. But I would also say make sure that you know whomever you want to benefit from your account has that account number and that uh, password so that they can get in and, and, and book tickets on your behalf uh, when you're not able to do that anymore. My thanks to Gary, to Keith Barr, and to William Flynn. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to hear podcasts. And for more on breaking travel news, that's the easy one. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.